Well, uh, Born is the King of Israel is the theme of our text this morning, and we're going to get to watch people respond to that in some very interesting ways. So, if you would, take your Bibles with me and make your way over to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. As you turn there, I'll just give you a second. I just want to say, you know, if you're like me and you've got any breath in your lungs at all, you've probably heard somebody somewhere at some point in time say, uh, yeah, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Right? Maybe you're like me, and you have just this super irrational dislike for every cliche you've ever heard in your life. And you can't explain it, but you hear somebody say something like that. And so while you're able to like kind of understand how generalizations work, you kind of get what they're saying. At the same time, you're thinking about this thing, and you're like, it kind of seems like both. Kind of seems like most things in life come down to what you know and who you know. It seems like there's a little bit mixed in uh, both those things all the time. We're going to get to see that reality at work in our text uh, this morning. What you know and who you know turns out to both be uh, really important things. So, uh, without further ado, let's look at the first 12 verses of Matthew. Then we'll dig into it and I'll see if I can show you what I mean. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and they sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we come this morning, uh, a people believing that your book lives, and so Lord, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would make uh, this word live to us right now, that you would use it in our lives to teach us, to train us, to reprove us, to correct us. Lord, accomplish your will in us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as we dig in here, you probably want to know a couple things or probably ought to know a couple things. I reckon you ought to think about it just a little bit. Herod. Who's Herod? I reckon you want to know that. So Herod, you're going to see the name Herod a good bit as you just flip through the New Testament. There was this whole Herodian dynasty deal. This Herod is the first Herod, often called Herod the Great, Herod the First. Herod the Great reigns from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and so if you do the math there and you think about this just a little bit, you're going to realize that our best attempts to put year zero in the year Jesus was born got really, really close, all things considered, but didn't get it quite right because Jesus and Herod the Great overlap a little bit. So we're really close, but it's not quite year zero. So if your faith in Jesus hinges on knowing what year Jesus was born in, I really hope that's not the case because the Bible doesn't tell us. We're not super excited. God apparently doesn't think that's the most important thing in the world, okay? Jesus is born. That's a fact. And he's born sometime while Herod the Great is ruling. So Herod the Great is on the throne. He is 
as it's regarded in the flesh, the king of the Jews. Now, a couple things about Herod that you probably want to know. Number one, he's an Idumean, which means he's from the line, he's from the people of Edom, which means he's descended from Esau, which means he's not really an Israelite. This guy is kind of masquerading as king of the Jews. He has not gotten here legitimately. Like he legitimately, he's the illegitimate king of the Jews. He's not even an Israelite, but he's the king of the Jews. So that's going to kind of be important to know as this story unfolds a little bit. The second thing that's really going to be really helpful for you to know as this story unfolds is Herod goes down in history as a paranoid guy. How paranoid was he? Why would he be paranoid? Well, I'm just here to tell you, might run contrary to, to popular belief, but apparently it's hard work being a king. Right, because when you do this whole like dynasty system, sometimes the people that are like waiting in the wings to take your job, sometimes they get really excited about having your job, and that would lead them sometimes in history to do like some rational things, like I don't know, like kill you, right? And so Herod's a little concerned about that potentially happening to him, and so he's got these sons who know they're going to come to the throne one of these days, and Herod, over the course of his life, decides, I'm going to start killing him. So he literally kills three of his sons to make sure that they don't take the throne prematurely, that they don't make any moves here to try to take the throne before uh, he passes of natural causes. A little paranoid. Um, he also has some marriage issues, we could say. So he was married. His first wife was this woman named uh, Doris. He and Doris have a son. He comes to realize over the course of his kingship that maybe it'd be a good idea for me to take a political marriage on also. Like, I have some rivals, some people who, like, don't want me to be the king. And so maybe if I marry into that family, those people would calm down a little bit. So he uh, takes this woman, Merriman, and he marries Merriman, and he really likes Merriman. Big fan. She's great. And so he decides over the course of the marriage with Merriman, I should probably, my marital life would be better if I get rid of Doris and her son. So he does. He doesn't kill him. He banishes them. So just get out of here, all right? So him and Merriman, all is well. But then Herod gets to think, he's paranoid, I remember this. So he gets to thinking, you know, Merriman's great because she's got me favor of my allies, I mean, my rivals, um, but she's also got a lot of ties with my rivals. What if they got her to turn on me? Even though I like her, I really love her. She's going to go down history as my favorite wife out of all the 10 of them that I end up having. Um, but I'm a killer. And so he does. And kills his kids and kills his wife so he can protect his right to be on the throne. So if you see his right to be on the throne threatened this morning and he's not real happy about it, it's kind of par for the course with our boy Herod. Herod is a little bit paranoid and uh, more than a little ruthless. Uh, well, I reckon you probably want to know about these wise men too. They're going to be important for us to understand as we track through this thing this morning. The wise men, who are the wise men? Um, maybe the best name for them is Magi. Uh, some of your Bible translations are going to say that. What does that mean? Magi is kind of this whole like class of people, and there's in some mixture of what we today would call, okay, that's kind of magic, or that's kind of astrology, or those two things may be combined, but it's kind of a normal thing back in that day in the ancient Near East for people to kind of be in this role, and so you see these guys in this role. They're from the East. Where's the East? We don't super know. Uh, one of our best guesses, though, probably most likely could be Babylon. The, the Babylonian description seems to fit pretty well. Uh, the best Bible scholars we have are telling us this is probably pretty likely. Um, one of the reasons that we think that is you'll note they've got a little bit of familiarity with the Old Testament, which makes sense because you'll remember from our time in Nehemiah, there was substantial overlap between Babylon and the people of Israel. So they have a little bit of knowledge about what's going on here, but they clearly belong to a different 
worldview, culture, nation. So, maybe that's what's going on with them. But what gets them involved in this story, all things considered, whether you call them magi, whether you call them wise men, whatever you want to call them, is astrology. They're very interested in this star that they've seen. And so here they come. They're involved in this story. That's why you're seeing them here. Well, I reckon with those things considered, you probably know enough for us to start kind of digging into this thing and see where this is going. So let's just look at the first two verses and see where we go from there. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born? King of the Jews. That is a heck of a question to walk in and ask somebody who thinks they're the king of the Jews, right? Where's the king of the Jews? What do you mean? I'm the king of the Jews. I've been the king of the Jews. You don't believe me? Call to Rome and ask Caesar. He, he told me I could be the king of the Jews. What do you mean, where's the king of the Jews? No, Herod, we're not talking about you. We're talking about the king who's just been born. What do you mean the king who's just been born? I haven't just had a kid. Don't you think I would know if I just had a kid? I kind of keep a tab on my kids, right? I'm pretty up on, on, on the up and up about that. No, Herod, like, I don't know what you're talking about, Herod. Whoever you are, Mr. Pretend King of the Jews, we know that the real genuine king of the Jews has just been born because we've seen his star, and we're kind of like astrologers. Like, this is kind of our job, so you just want to drop it and tell us where the actual king of the Jews is. Like, where is he at? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, something very interesting just happened there. Maybe you're curious about the star, or maybe you're not, right? <laughs> but that's because hindsight's not your friend. Something very interesting is going on with this star. The star by this point in time has been understood by the Jewish people. Okay, this corresponds to the Messiah. And we know this. The word that we're getting from the prophet probably refers back to a statement made by our boy Balaam. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, we've got to spend some time talking about Balaam. Balaam is kind of a half-baked prophet who uh, sometimes speaks really clearly from the Lord. And other times the Lord makes his donkey speak to him. Because he's so off base, right? But in one of his clearer moments, Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. We know with great confidence through Jewish rabbinic literature that by the time of the first century, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the Jews are rock solid, steady, confident. That's talking about the Messiah. What's going on in Numbers 24, this whole idea of the star accompanying this, is pointing us back to this promise that's been made in Genesis chapter 49. Okay, there's somebody coming. He's going to come from the line of Judah. He's going to eventually come from the house of David, and he is going to reign. The scepter is not going to depart. The staff's not going to depart. And so when Balaam says this, they've now tagged, okay, that sign is going to accompany him. That's the Messiah's star. This is talking about the Messiah. They've got that. The Jews get it. They're really, really clear on that. And so this overlap that these magi have with the Jewish people through their interaction, probably in Babylon, they're able to put it together. That star is about the king of the Jews. We know that the, the Jewish people are waiting on somebody. They're waiting on a Messiah, and this, there's going to be a star that accompanies him. And so when we see this star, we know it's got something to do with what's going on in Jerusalem. The Magi get it. They make the connection. And we know really clearly the people of Israel make the connection. At least Herod makes the connection because of how he responds. Verse 
3. When Herod heard, uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod knows. Herod hears them say, hey, we saw the star. Like, we've, the king of the Jews, and we've seen his star. And Herod really quickly connects the data and says, I need to know where the Christ is. Like, that's who they've come here looking for. That's what they're after. All this is out there. All the dots are there to be connected. Okay, we're waiting on somebody to come to crush the head of the serpent. We're waiting on somebody to come through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. We're waiting on somebody to come who's going to be the perfect, true, and better prophet. We're waiting on somebody to come who's going to be the perfect, true, and better king. And they're really clear, this is about him. The Magi get that in as much as they understand what's going on. And Herod really clearly gets that. King of the Jews, there's a star. This is talking about the Messiah. This is the one whom we've been waiting on. This is all out there in the open for people to see. So, Herod does what he knows to do, and he says, uh, I got to get some, I got to check my sources. Let me phone a friend here. And so he gets on the phone with the chief priest and with the scribes. Now, the chief priests are predominantly Sadducees. We're going to see them uh, quite a bit as we read Matthew. And the scribes are predominantly made up of Pharisees, who we're going to see all the time as we read Matthew. They're going to be one of our main characters, right? So these people, between the, between the chief priests and the scribes, these are the religious elites in Israel. Like, these are the people who know the Bible at this point in time better than anybody else in the world knows the Bible. And so Herod says, could you people tell me? I'm not real good at this whole religion thing. I, don't even, I shouldn't even be here. I'm not even a Jew. But could you people tell me, like, where this Christ is coming to? Where is he coming from? Because these kind, our kind Babylonian friends who've come into town here, this is clearly who they're looking for. There's a king. And there's a star, and when I read that, that's screaming to me, Messiah. So could you guys tell me where the Messiah is coming from? And they do. Verse 5, they told him, hey, in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod asked them, and they get it right. They get it right. They get it really clearly right. Like, yes, okay, great. Glad you asked us, Herod. We are well equipped to answer that question. We know because on the basis of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the one who's coming, the one who's going to be born king of the Jews, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the Christ, the one who's coming to crush the head of the serpent and be the true and better prophet and be the true and better David, like, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's coming from the line of Judah. He's coming from the house and lineage of David, and he's going to be born in the city of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They get that. They've got that quote quite clearly from Micah 5 2. However, there's something very interesting that goes on. This is not only Micah 5 2. That phrase right there at the end, who will shepherd my people Israel, is not original to Micah 5 2. It doesn't belong with Micah 5 2. It belongs to 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 2. 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 2. Who are we talking to? Maybe you've heard of him. This guy named David. And the Lord's word to David at that point in time is, hey, David, in times past, Saul ruled over these people. He doesn't rule over these people anymore. You, David, you're going to shepherd my people, Israel. So what would lead these people to make that connection? What would lead Matthew to record that connection for us? 
that this one who's coming, the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem, the one whom this star is going to precede and reveal and guide folks to, like what leads them to make the connection with, he's going to shepherd. He's going to shepherd my people Israel. He's the son of David. The one we've been waiting on to come and to sit on David's throne is going to be the true and better David. These prophecies are talking about the same person. They get that. And can we just pause for a second and say that's really impressive? Like, I, I'll just be honest with you, I think that's amazing. You might not think that's amazing, but again, that's because you haven't realized yet, hindsight is not your friend. Hindsight is not your friend as we come to the book of Matthew. Because what just happened? Like, let's just, ima- let's just let's imagine a little bit. We're going to imagine quite a bit this morning. I want you to imagine you are an old covenant believer. You're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're not illumined by the Holy Spirit the way you are as you sit here right now, if indeed you have trusted the Lord Jesus. Let's imagine you've never heard of Jesus. You've never read the New Testament ever in the history of the world. And you live thousands of years ago without lots of the requisite knowledge that you now bring to the table. And here's what I want you to imagine. We hand you just an Old Testament. So just this part, just this part. And we say, sit down and read it for a little bit. Take a few years, sit down, read through it. Tell me what you think. And we come back and we've got, okay, got it. There's going to come one who's coming to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be the same one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's the same person. And then he's also going to be the one who's going to be the true and better Moses, like the perfect prophet. And he's going to be the one who comes and sits on the throne of David. Like that's all the same person. He's coming and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And when he shows up in Bethlehem, there's going to be a star that announces he's here. Like guys, that's really good Bible scholarship. They have done a really, really good job of putting that together. They have absolutely hit the nail right on the head. That's phenomenal. And they don't care at all. And they couldn't care less. They've got this thing perfectly right in their heads, and they botch it in their hearts. Turns out, knowing with your head and responding rightly with your heart are two very different realities. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. So how do I know? How can I say that so clearly? So matter-of-factly, that these people who've got it right, who've done really, really, really good Bible scholarship and know all the right things in their head, how can I tell you with such matter-of-fact confidence that they've botched this thing in their hearts? Because they've got all the data they need to know what just happened. They've been told what's just happened. Here come these people saying, we've seen this star. And they send them to Bethlehem to see the Messiah. And they stay at home. They've got all the tools they need to understand the weight of what, like, we've been waiting on this for thousands of years. He's here. He's five miles down the road. And you pagans go see him. We've got to get to the house. I, I'm, at, let's, I'm enjoying using our imagination. Let's use our imagination a little bit one more time, okay? And let's imagine, this will be easier if you're a woman, because here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to imagine that you're married to one of these people. Like you're married to a scribe, or you're married to one of the chief priests. You could say you're married to Herod. I wouldn't pick Herod. Herod might kill you, okay? So just say, 
You're married to one of these big, big Jewish leadership people. And you are sitting at your big, fine house that your big, big husband has got for you. Because, again, he's like one of these religious leaders. So y'all get all this free stuff. And everybody just thinks you're the best. And they treat you real well in the marketplaces. And so you kind of live a life of luxury. And so you're just sitting at home. And here comes big, big husband through the door. And you just look at him and say, hey, honey, how was your day today? And he says, you know, I had the most interesting day at work today. It was just really yeah, like, so, you know, you know how we're waiting on the Messiah to come, like the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and bless all the nations and be the true and better David and the true and better Moses. Like, you know how we're waiting on him? Yeah, of course. Everybody knows that. Yeah, great. What about him? Well, I think he's here. What do you, what do you mean you think he's here? Like, I mean, I, like, so, so some guys, we were just sitting at the office today, and here come some guys from Babylon, like 800 miles, and they just walked up, and they were like, have we been following the star around? Like, don't you guys believe there's going to be some star that, like, tells you the Messiah's here? Like, we think it's here. Really? It's, it's here. Wow. Okay. Well, if the star's here. Where's the star telling you? Where's the star telling you to go? And so, so then, honey, here's what happened. You know, he, they asked us, like, can you tell us what city we need to go to? Like, we know we're really close, but can you tell us what city that we need to go to? And you know how this works. Like, they asked Herod, but, honey, you know Herod doesn't know his Bible. Like, you know that guy doesn't know what's going on. So he has to turn around and ask us. And so he asks us, and after he asks us, we tell him, hey, you got to tell him he's, that he's been born in Bethlehem. So, yep, we told him he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and, and off they went down to Bethlehem. Wow, that's fascinating. So, honey, what did you think when you went to see him? I didn't go see him. I'm sorry, do you what? I didn't go see him. I don't know what you want. You're telling me, beloved husband, that you, one of the chief priests, one of the, one of the scribes, one of the people who has every tool you would possibly need to feel the weight of what's going on when you say something like the Messiah is here, and you're telling me that you didn't want to go see him? Well, honey, when you put it like that, it does sound kind of bad, but I don't understand. I mean, we told, the, we told the Babylonians to go see them and come back and stop by on the way by and tell us what they thought. You sent the pagans to go see the Messiah and you stayed at the office? Are you kidding me? That hopefully feels a little ridiculous. I hope it does. Because it's ridiculous. The people with all of the requisite knowledge to understand what was going on didn't care at all. No concern Whatsoever. They've got it all right in their head, and they've got it all wrong in their hearts. It's a huge error. It's a dangerous error. Unfortunately, it's an error that me and you are not immune to. We're a people of ditches. In life, we find ourselves faced with lots of ditches. Our spiritual lives aren't any different. There's a reason that the straight and narrow path is a straight and narrow path because there's a way to err on both sides of the path. I know that from personal experience. You probably do too. Uh, I'll just tell you really quickly my encounter with this. So when I was in high school, or just graduated high school, I guess, about to go to college, me and a buddy were sitting around. We were lifting some weights, working out. We get done. We have nothing to do. And so we were bored. And you know, especially if you're a 17-year-old boy, the next step after you get bored is you get in trouble. So um, we are looking for something to do, and we kind of settle on, let's take a joy ride. Let's just go for a ride. So my dad had, emphasis on the past tense, had a blazer, and it was cool. It was loud. It had mud tires on it, everything you need in a vehicle. It was also a stick shift. I just learned how to drive a stick shift. And so me and my buddy, we were bored. We know where the key's at. So we hop in the car, and we just take off. 
we make it a whopping like two and a half miles from my house. And we're on this dirt road, and I'm having a good time, and you might, this might surprise you. I was probably going a little faster than I should have been. I was probably being a little more careless than I should have been. And so I'm coming out of this turn, and I'm somewhere between second and third gear. And when I let out of the clutch, the tires start spinning. They don't catch. And it was really fun for what seemed like a couple of seconds. And then they decide to catch while the front of the vehicle is pointed out into this gully. That's when they decide to catch. So I take the best of what seems like the options I had, and I snatch the wheel back as hard as I can to the right, spin it out in the road, put it in the other ditch, comes to rest up against an embankment. Now, I will say, uh, if we're being honest, I pro- I'm probably would have died if we'd have went in the gully, okay? Uh, but I didn't put it in the gully. We put it in the other ditch. But I'm just here to tell you, personal experience tells me, in that situation, both those ditches will tow to the vehicle. Like, neither one's a real good option. And that's the same thing here. It ain't real good to have a head problem, and it ain't real good to have a heart problem. Both of those will get you in trouble. We don't want either one. Now, there's some events that have gone on in the history of Christianity, especially Christianity as it's been lived out in this country. It's about 100 years ago, there were some very real events that took place in America that led the Christian church to say the best thing for us to do is get out of here. We're going to withdraw. We're going to step back from the world. We're going to yield all this stuff over to academia and let them run with it. We're just going to get in our little holy huddle, and we're going to cling to these few basic truths that we kind of know, and we're just going to keep telling ourselves we believe them and tell ourselves we believe them and tell ourselves I believe them. And uh, we're just going to let the world do what they want to do. Consequently, what ended up happening is people just say they believe things. We don't really understand how this all fits together, works together. We don't know how to defend our faith anymore. The door's wide open for what we call theological liberalism to just take front stage. We don't have to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. We don't have to uphold biblical data on manhood and womanhood. We don't have to fight that women shouldn't abort their kids. And Christians just looked around and were confronted with that and had no idea what to do because they'd stopped thinking about that years ago. We don't know what we believe. We don't know how to explain it. We don't know how to engage the world with it. So we've got this huge head problem that's actually destroyed a lot of the church. We're still reaping the effects of this. The last 40 years we've seen a mass exodus from the local church. No need to fear. It comes from really, really well-intended people to say, We've put it in that ditch. We've got to fix this. Like, we've got, yeah, we might, there might be some good people who love Jesus, who've got some of this right in their hearts, but they can't explain their faith. They can't pass it down to their kids. They can't defend themselves against the world. We've got to fix the head problem. So here comes the solution to the head problem. Let's just get Christian literature everywhere. We just got to flood these people with resources. Like, if we get them enough books and we get them enough podcasts, and we start putting theology on YouTube, I don't have anything against YouTube, but I just would recommend don't get your theology from YouTube. Turns out they'll let anybody put anything on there, and nobody wins, okay? But we'll just put all these Christian resources out there to help people think, to help people be better thinkers. They're going to think, they're going to think, they're going to think, they're going to think, they're going to think. And the, the consequence is, and I hope you don't think I've got a problem with books. I just plugged a book. Read books. But the problem is it led some people to say Christian maturity is all about having knowledge. Like, if I know the right things, I'm fine. If I'm a smart person with good theology, who's got good hermeneutics, and I can read the Bible well, and maybe I go take some classes, maybe I get a degree, like, that means I'm a mature Christian. And the problem is the Bible just runs into that and says, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. What else does Paul mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This knowledge puffs up. 
there is, a, there is knowledge that's not good knowledge. There is, there is knowledge that I want to have just because I'm a curious person and I want to know these things. And I really think my life revolves around knowing more facts about things. Like, if that knowledge leads us to say we're better than people, we're more mature than people, we know what's going on, we really feel bad for all these people that don't know what's going on, that, that's actually not helping you. That's what Paul goes on to say. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's a Christian way to do this rightly. We don't want to be in the head ditch. We don't want to be in the heart ditch. Our scribes, our chief priests, are in the ditch where they've got the heart problem. They got it all right in their heads. They know all the right things in their heads. They've been to all the right seminaries. They've read all the right books. They've got all the right authors that they can quote. They, they got all that stuff figured out. They, quite, they know exactly where the Messiah is going to be born. They've connected all the dots in the Bible, and they got it totally wrong in their hearts. The people who know the most don't respond rightly at all. Interestingly, these people who barely know what's going on actually want to respond rightly. Pick up with me in the middle of verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I hope you've caught this. If you haven't caught it, catch it right now. Like this is a this is a supernatural star that's leading these people in a supernatural way. It's taking them exactly to where Jesus is at. It takes him, it takes him, it takes him, comes to rest over the place where the child was. But then watch these people. Watch these magi. Watch these wise men who are pagans, who are from Babylon, who only have a fleeting knowledge of what's going on with the Old Testament, who are studying stars for a living, who probably worship a pagan pantheon of gods, have no idea who God is. They say, we're going to worship him. And they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. So, so, so these friends right here have a head problem. Like they don't know what they ought to know. But the barely little bit they do know leads them to respond with their hearts. They don't have a heart problem. They got a head problem. But they do not have a heart problem. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Friends, this is the way that we have to respond to Jesus. Exceedingly with great joy. And we want to marry the knowledge that we have about the Lord with deep, right affections for the Lord. And if those two things don't mesh, we'll be in one of the two ditches and we'll be in a bad place. What do they do? Verse 11, going into the house, here comes their worship. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Verse 11, going into the house, I hate to do this to you, but if you've just got like a really rigid uh, nativity set in your mind with wise men hanging out around it, I hate to break it to you. That's not exactly how this thing went down. Why didn't it go down like that? Like, what, what, what are you telling? Jesus is in a house. Jesus is in a house by now, not because he was born in a house. He was born in a manger, but some time has undoubtedly gone by. So if these people are where our best evangelical Bible scholars are telling us that they're from, they're 800 miles from Jesus when the star rises, which we're talking about at that point in time, a minimum of at least 40 days. Could have been much longer than that. Uh, we'll see it in the text next week. I don't know that I'll make a lot of comment on it, but you've got this whole deal where when Herod decides he's going to hunt Jesus, he's looking for people who are up to two years old. So we just got to ask, okay, wait, how much time elapsed between the wise men getting this message and them getting there. And then we got to figure out how much time elapsed between Herod realizing the wise men weren't coming back and when he went after Jesus. And so whatever numbers you attribute to those two variables, they add up to two years. So we're dealing with a span of time here. That's why Jesus is in a house and not 
a manger. But here they come to worship him, and they find him in a house while I'm crushing your nativity set dreams. Because maybe you just realized, if you bought a nativity set with individual pieces, you may have just realized you bought three unnecessary pieces. But let me make it just a little bit uh, worse for you, I guess. We don't know how many people there were. We sang that song a minute ago. It's a great song. I'm not going to recant on the song. But three. Where did we get that number from? We got that number from the number of gifts that are given to them. So this, this text is nowhere told you how many wise men there were. But there are three gifts given. But me and you both know that if we just counted people by the amount of, like, diverse gifts given, that doesn't work out real well for us. I don't know what your experience was. My experience, the year that Yeti Cups came out, is I got 15 Yeti Cups for Christmas. That doesn't mean that only one person gave me gifts. It just means that all the people who gave me gifts decided they, I, all, I needed a Yeti cup. And that's great. I love Yeti cups. That's fantastic. If, you, if the Lord leads you to get me a Yeti cup this year, great. I like the 20-ounce ones with the matte finish with the magnet slider lids. Okay? But that's, so we don't know emphatically or definitively where, wh- how many wise men we're dealing with. Probably a decent amount because it's enough to get people in Jerusalem's attention, which is why Herod gets involved. Right? So... Sorry if your nativity set just got destroyed. But I don't care. I don't care what you think about where they're from. I don't care what you think about how long it took them to get there. I don't really care what you think about how many there were. What what I want you to see is these men who have this little tiny body of knowledge who barely understand what's going on. They take that little body of knowledge that they have. Something really important has just happened in Jerusalem. And they show up with their treasures to worship. They might have a head problem. They need to know things. They don't have a heart problem. The people who know all the right things miss it. The people who barely think they kind of see what's going on here get it right. Brothers and sisters, we don't have have a head problem or a heart problem. These people, our Jewish friends here, have a massive heart problem. Our Babylonian friends here have a little bit of a head problem. But they're responding rightly. And the conclusion, verse 12 being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The conclusion is that the Lord is providentially overseeing this thing to protect his son and to frustrate the efforts of those who would oppose his kingship. And we'll have much, much more on that next week. But the people who find themselves being opposed are the people who know all the right things. And the Lord's working against them. Because they're not responding rightly in their heart. Again, more on that next week. But this week, uh, this week I just got to ask you, do you know Jesus? That's not me asking if you know about Jesus. Very different question. Do you know Jesus? I'm sure you know that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that you could have life and life abundant with the Lord. I'm sure you know that. I'm sure that you would intellectually affirm that. But as, so as a pastor, as someone whose job it is to help the people of God get home, the question I'm much more interested in is do you trust Jesus? Do you treasure Jesus? Because if you trust and treasure Jesus, like if you, if you really know Jesus, if you understand what's going on here, if you understand that this is the one who's come to crush the head of the serpent, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. He's going to be the true and better Moses. He's going to be the true and better David. This is the king of the Jews. Like what has just happened in Bethlehem is a really big deal. And if you know that, like if you get that, 
your trust in, in your treasure. You'll put all of your hope, everything you've got on Jesus, and you'll say, get it off of me. Jesus, you take it. Jesus, my life needs to be about you. It needs to be lived for you because I can't do anything but mess this up. Do you know Jesus? Do you trust and treasure Jesus? Not do you know about him. Not do you know some intellectual things. You need to know things and you will know things. The Lord will make sure that you know more things as you trust the Lord Jesus and walk with him. But do you know him? Brothers and sisters, there's an absolute, there's an absolute world a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. There's actually a heaven and a hell of a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the true King of Israel, the right King of Israel, the legitimate King of Israel has come. We thank you, Lord, that you did all the work that you promised you would do to make it obvious that he's arrived. And that we've seen really clearly that the people who were supposed to be waiting on him didn't care. Lord, I pray you would make us a people who care and care deeply, a people who don't just know things about the Bible and know things about Jesus and know things because we're curious and it makes us feel smart. But Lord, I pray that we would rest our entire souls on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, knowing that apart from him, we bring nothing good to the table. Lord, if there are people this morning who don't know Jesus in this room, people who've never trusted and treasured Jesus, I pray that you would do uh, the work of making them know Jesus, letting them meet Jesus even this morning. Lord, for those of us who do know him and do trust him, I pray that we would treasure him more and more. I pray that you would grow our knowledge of him and about him so that we might love him more deeply with our hearts. Lord, make us the people who respond from our hearts to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You can stand and sing with us. We'll have a brief hymn of response. I'll be down at the front uh, if you'd like to pray with me or talk with me.